Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, we'll talk tax and its impact on the lives of taxpayers and tax professionals. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. If I asked you to name a right that you have under the Constitution, chances are that you would say some variation on the right to own property. Most of us are pretty familiar with the ideas found in the Constitution that governments cannot deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So if I told you that the government could seize your property to resolve criminal cases, even without a conviction, or tax and financial abnormalities, that would probably come as a surprise but it's happening around the country. In one instance, retired railroad engineer Terry Rowland asked his daughter to take his retirement savings in cash with her to Boston. Concerned about flying with the more than $82,000 her father had entrusted to her, Rebecca checked online to make sure that she didn't need to do anything to take the money with her on the plane. She found out that flying domestically with any amount of cash is completely legal. But her bag was held by the TSA after she went through security because the money showed up on the x-ray. She was questioned by the Pennsylvania State Troopers and a DEA agent. She was not charged with a crime and she was not arrested. But eventually, the government told Terry that it was keeping the money by using a legal process called civil forfeiture. In March of 2020, Terry finally learned that his life savings of $82,373 would be returned to him but there would be no apology. Roland isn't the only citizen with a problem. Today, civil forfeiture is one of the biggest threats to property rights in South Carolina. It allows law enforcement to take cash, cars, homes, and other property without charging anyone with a crime. For example, last year, prosecutors seized and tried to permanently take Travis Green's money. The matter went to court, and the judge concluded that officials couldn't try to forfeit Green's or anyone else's money in his judicial circuit, but prosecutors have appealed it to the Supreme Court. And a few years ago, in a case that you guys probably remember, the U.S. used civil forfeiture to seize more than $68,000 from Vocatura's bakery because the bakery's owners deposited cash in the bank in the amounts under $10,000. The IRS kept that money for three years and sought to pressure the Vocaturas to plead guilty to criminal charges of structuring bank deposits. Eventually, the IRS agreed to return all of the bakery's money. Last year, Congress finally reined in civil forfeiture, which lets the government permanently confiscate property without ever filing criminal charges. The Taxpayer First Act, H.R. 3151, curbs the IRS's power to seize cash for structuring offenses. But that doesn't mean that seizures are permanently gone. In June of 2020, Steve Forbes brought the attention to this issue an episode of What's Ahead, which focused on civil forfeiture. As Forbes pointed out, possessions have been seized even when citizens have never been charged with a crime, much less convicted. Civil forfeitures have become a source of government revenue, raising billions of dollars. It's shocking. And to try to make sense of it all, I'm turning to today's guest, Dan Alban. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thank you very much. So can you give us some history about some of these civil uh, forfeiture cases? Sure. Well, I'll give you just a brief nutshell of the history of civil forfeiture. 
it dates back to before America was a country. It dates back to the British uh, Maritime and Navigation Acts of the 17th century that were designed to prevent smuggling because Britain was trying to control the seas and did not want competitors with uh, ships with Spanish uh, flags, for instance, for bringing in goods into port. And so they passed laws saying that if you're caught smuggling goods, the ship could be seized, the goods could be seized. And the reason for that was often the owners of the ships were still somewhere else in Spain or Italy or Portugal or somewhere. And they couldn't very well charge those people with a crime. And so that's the origins of civil forfeiture. It comes out of admiralty law. Oh, cool. We imported that concept in America when we started imposing you know, tariffs and duties and customs on imported goods and wanted to police smuggling. And again, it was the same problem. In the 18th century, we didn't have rapid international communication or agreements to arrest someone and transport them overseas, all those sorts of things. About all you could do when you caught a smuggling ship was either seize the ship or seize the cargo or both. Because again, the owner of that ship was probably not on the ship, was probably somewhere overseas. And so was beyond the reach of the law, certainly due to the technological limitations of what was going on in the, in the 18th century. They, they could not very easily track down people in, say, London or uh, Lisbon or anywhere else to um, prosecute them. And so the, the seizure of the ship and the cargo was what they resolved to do to stop smuggling. And so it was used to stop uh, smuggling and piracy for several hundred years. When the United States passed prohibition in the early 20th century, it was expanded somewhat. And you can imagine, obviously, there's smuggling going on during prohibition. People are bringing in uh, whiskey from Canada, and there are ships dropping barrels off the coast, and people are fishing them out at the beach. You know, there's all sorts of smuggling activities going on. And so I think at the time, they thought it was sort of a natural progression. Mm-hmm. If you're caught smuggling on a ship uh, with, you know, say, rum or whiskey, the ship or the cargo could be seized under the same civil forfeiture and admiralty laws. Of course, in the early 20th century, when prohibition was in place, there was a new form of transportation, the automobile. And so trucks were also bringing whiskey across the border from Canada. And, you know, there are folks making their own moonshine in the the hills of Appalachia and other places. And so when the feds caught those people, they decided to use civil forfeiture to try to forfeit the vehicles and or the cargo. And so that was kind of how civil forfeiture evolved into the early 20th century. Of course, when prohibition ended, that practice basically went away. And it wasn't until a new form of prohibition in the 1980s, the drug war, started to really kick off the current explosion of civil forfeiture. Congress passed a number of laws in the early 1980s, especially the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984, that changed a lot of things about how civil forfeiture works. Among other things, it created the DOJ uh, forfeiture fund and also a treasury forfeiture fund. And it said, when you seize property and obtain it through civil forfeiture, you can put the money in those funds and those funds can only be spent for law enforcement purposes. So this dramatically changed the incentives for law enforcement agencies. Previously, if you seized a, a ship or a car or some cargo, it would have to be sold and the money would just be deposited in the general treasury and 
your agency wouldn't get anything in particular from that. So there wasn't a huge incentive to devote a lot of resources to civil forfeiture. It was just one of the things that you would occasionally do if you were a customs agent and you came across smuggled goods. Right. But uh, with the changes that were made in the early 80s, everyone's incentives were, were dramatically altered. The same for states, individual states? Was it the same kind of uh, transition? The states generally followed the lead of the federal government around that same time. And I think a lot of it was pressure from law enforcement because they saw what the feds were, were doing. They were able to forfeit large amounts of currency, vehicles, all sorts of things, and then deposit those funds into their own bank accounts, the DOJ forfeiture fund and the treasury forfeiture fund that only they could spend. And so they had access suddenly to huge amounts of cash that they had seized and forfeited and could spend that on pretty much anything because anything they spent money on was by definition a law enforcement purpose. At the state level, a number of similar changes took place around that same time to allow state law enforcement to do that. A handful of states didn't follow suit, but um, for the most part, by the early 2000s, I believe North Carolina was the only state that did not have that civil forfeiture system in place. Gotcha. So how did it transition then from, because the cases that we were talking about, one of them involved the DEA, but the other ones were not drug related. How did we move from, you know, arguably something that was intended for for good purposes, right? If if you believe, uh, if you believe that those, those laws were in place for good reasons, how does it move from, we want to stop drug dealers to, we're going to take money from a bakery or we're going to take money from a retired person? As I mentioned, the incentives that were created when those forfeiture funds were set up drove a lot of the decisions that were being made at the time. And if you were DEA, it was great to be able to keep the, the money that you seized from you know, drug dealers. But if you were, say, the IRS, you know, and you're not investigating uh, narcotics trafficking, uh, you feel a little bit left out. And so there was pressure to sort of expand the scope of civil forfeiture to lots of other offenses. And so the statutes that were passed allowed civil forfeiture, not just for drug trafficking offenses, but for a wide variety of offenses, including things related to smuggling cash, uh, money laundering, the structuring uh, laws that you mentioned. And these are all generally somewhat connected because I think the theory is if you are a narcotics trafficker, you're going to be selling a lot of drugs in the United States and you're going to have a lot of money coming back and you need to find ways to get it safely back to wherever you are. Let's say Colombia, if you're a cocaine cartel. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to find ways to, to smuggle the cash. And so there's you know all of these laws about bulk cash smuggling and money laundering and various things that are designed not just to, present, to prevent drug trafficking, but that's probably their primary use. And so all of these laws were kind of thrown into these catch-all bills that allowed law enforcement to use this new civil forfeiture tool for a wide variety of different sorts of offenses. And so you mentioned earlier the structuring offenses. That was one of them. And people who listen to your podcast are probably familiar with structuring, but in case they're not, there's a requirement if uh, a financial institution like a bank does a transaction with someone that is $10,000 or more and involves currency, they need to report that to FinCEN, an agency within the treasury. And that ultimately 
potentially gets reported to the IRS, but is also used to investigate financial crimes. For the most part, those reports that are submitted, these currency transaction reports is what they're called, not really anything happens with them other than if there's a large number of them for a certain person or something, it may trigger an investigation. But in general, if you go in and, you know, cash a check for $20,000 or deposit a check for $20,000 or something, that's not going to have any real effect uh, on your life for the most part. Right. And just so people understand, those those reports are actually filed by the banks. They're not right. filed by the person with the cash. So That's it's correct. sort of the bank, the bank industry is tasked with kind of flagging these transactions. And they also can flag other transactions that may be suspicious, but don't fall underneath those exact dollar limits. But if they do hit those dollar limits, the bank's supposed to say, hey, this happened. It doesn't mean it's suspicious, as you said. It just means this happened. And then it sort of gets looked at and they look for patterns. And if they see that you're doing it a lot, then they might think you're structuring. And why would people structure? So a lot of people make deposits under $10,000 for a wide variety of legitimate reasons that have nothing to do with structuring. Probably most of everyone's financial and transactions involve amounts less than $10,000. People make these transactions sometimes not knowing anything about the structuring laws. So a lot of our clients who we represented were just small businesses that had uh, regular cash intake every day. They did not want to keep the money in the store for very long. Sometimes they didn't want to keep it in the store overnight, or they didn't want to keep it in the store for more than two or three days. A number of them had insurance policies that said, we will not insure more than $10,000 in cash if it's stolen or there's a fire or something like that. And so they didn't want to build up more than $10,000 in cash in the store because of the risk that something could happen. Many small businesses make pretty regular bank deposits, either daily or a few times a week to um, make sure they don't have too much cash on the premises. The IRS looks at that and thinks that you're trying to avoid reporting or they worry that perhaps you're engaged in money laundering. I mean, that's kind of the, the things that they're looking at, right? Yeah. Although I think at a certain point, this whole thing went off the rails and the IRS stopped worrying about whether there was any actual illegal underlying activity and started just saying, well, We've got a series of transactions here that if lumped together would be over $10,000. So we're going to consider that suspicious and seize this business's bank account. And we're not going to bother investigating whether they're actually up to any kind of illegal activity. We just think having a series of $3,000 or $4,000 deposits over several days is suspicious and indicative of structuring. So we're just going to seize the bank account. And that's what happened to many of our clients. Right. And so obviously that was concerning for them and that's why they reached out. And then the law changed with respect to structuring. But these other ways that the government can commit civil forfeiture still exist. And this is what's happening right now in South Carolina. And I think the one was uh, Boston, but the, the gentleman lived in Pennsylvania. Is that correct? Yeah. So that case is actually out of Pittsburgh because she was stopped as she was going through TSA security at the Pittsburgh airport. Okay. And uh, that's where her money was seized. But yes, yeah, so the structuring, we brought a number of cases challenging these structuring seizures by IRS. You mentioned the Vocatura Brothers uh, Bakery in Connecticut that had money seized by the IRS and, and held for several years without any criminal charges or anything being filed. We represented a lady named Carol Henders in Spirit Lake, Iowa, who ran a Mexican restaurant that was cash only. 
the IRS seized her bank account because she was regularly depositing the daily cash receipts into her bank. We represented uh, uh, grocery store owners in Michigan, Terry Deco and his daughter Sandy, who had exactly the same thing happen. We also represented a gas station owner in Michigan who had the exact same thing happen. We represented uh, Jeff Hirsch and his brothers, the Hirsch brothers, that had a distribution company and wholesale company that provided supplies for convenience stores on Long Island. They had over $400,000 seized from their bank account. And we represented uh, Randy Sowers, a dairy farmer from Maryland, who had uh, a whole bunch of money seized by the IRS. Unfortunately, we weren't in touch with him initially, and he negotiated a settlement where he got to keep some of the money, but he lost $29,500 to the IRS. And we represented him on a, a petition asking the, the IRS and DOJ to return his money. How do folks find you or do you find them? It happens both ways. So we read news stories about civil forfeiture that's going on around the country. We do our best to, to contact the people whose money was seized. Of course, most seizures are not particularly newsworthy. They don't end up in the news. We also have a website that has a form that people can fill out submitting a a potential client form asking for us to help represent them. As we've litigated more and more of these cases, we've been litigating civil forfeiture cases for over 20 years now. We've developed a reputation as a a firm that that does these sorts of cases. And also we are a, a public interest nonprofit law firm that represents all of our clients pro bono. So as you can imagine, folks really prefer to have pro bono uh, legal (laughs) assistance uh, because the the typical deal, if you're represented by a private attorney in a forfeiture case, is the attorney will get to keep one third of whatever you recover. And so, and the typical deal that's negotiated shortly after you retain the attorney is uh, a deal kind of like what happened with Randy Sowers. They'll offer you usually 50% of the money back and you lose 50% of the money and just have to walk away from it. And I think a lot of people don't understand how expensive litigation can be to begin with. So if you go to a law firm and ask them to help you recover, you mentioned 400,000, that's something that they might jump at if they get a piece of that. But when you start looking at some of these smaller amounts of money, there's less of an incentive for for for-profit firms to reach out to someone who is fighting $40,000, even though that might be all of their savings or their receipts for the month. That's something that a lot of folks don't always understand how expensive it can be to litigate, even when you're right. (laughs) Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's one of the reasons why there's such a strong incentive to to settle these cases. If we're talking about amounts under, I'm going to say probably about $100,000 and maybe $80,000, for most attorneys, actually litigating the case and going to trial to get a one-third of the recovered funds is not a very good financial proposition. They can do better spending their time on other cases. Right. The efficient way to resolve the case is to just negotiate a settlement almost immediately. And then you've put very little work into the case. The government you know, has standard practices, and they'll generally offer 50% to private counsel who contact them. And then, you know, the private counsel have something to take back to their client and say, well, we couldn't get it all, but we got 50%. If you get 50% back, your lawyer is still getting a a third of that. So you end up with, you know, roughly a a third of what you started with. And that's in a nearly best case scenario, because many people don't manage to find an attorney, don't manage to fill out all the paperwork in time, are confused by the process and just end up losing their money altogether. The vast majority of these cases never even make it to court. 
So for the ones that are currently pending, what are kind of the main arguments and, and what do you feel in terms of optimism about resolution? Well, there's many, many forfeiture cases pending uh, all across the country. We have uh, at IJ a number of cases currently pending. We're waiting for a decision from the Fifth Circuit in a, a case involving a seizure of a pickup truck at the border where customs kept our client's pickup truck for over two years and didn't permit him to have any opportunity to have a hearing to get the truck back. Uh, we challenged that, said, look, you've got to have a, an opportunity for a hearing sooner than two years after the seizure. You have to provide a prompt post-seizure hearing that's required by due process. And we're waiting for the Fifth Circuit to decide that case. In about a month, uh, we'll have an oral argument in another case uh, before the Fifth Circuit involving my client, Antonia Nawari, who was flying from Houston to Nigeria, her home country, to start a medical clinic. And she had over $40,000 with her. And she ran afoul of the same structuring laws that we were mentioning before, or actually the currency reporting laws that we were mentioning before. But these ones work somewhat differently. The obligation is actually on the individual air traveler to report when they are leaving the country with more than $10,000. Okay. Most people aren't aware of that. You're familiar when you come back into the country, you go through customs, you have to fill out a form. One of the questions on the form is, do you have more than $10,000? But when you leave the country, they don't give you a form to report that. And so mm -hmm. you just have to know that that's the law, fill out the form and take it to an office that is sometimes not at the airport to let them know that you're planning to leave the country with more than $10,000. Antonia wow. did not know about that. All of her 40000 uh, over $40,000 was seized. This is money that she had saved for several years to try to start this medical clinic for women and children who couldn't afford medical care in her hometown that she grew up in. You know, obviously this totally derailed her plans. We filed suit on her behalf. Ultimately, CBP agreed to return the money. And currently what we're litigating about is they demanded that she sign a hold harmless agreement, releasing all of her rights, including her rights to sue about it as a condition of returning the money. The problem was, they were already past their deadline to file a civil forfeiture complaint, and the law requires them to return the money once that happens. And so they were trying to add an additional condition that's not in the statute and not in their regulations, saying, before we send you this money, you've got to sign this whole harmless agreement, waiving all these rights, agreeing never to sue us, agreeing to indemnify us, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we advised her to not sign that document and sue instead. And so that's what we did. And that case will be argued before the Fifth Circuit, either at the end of August or early September. So with all of these different kinds of rules, which not only are these, as you mentioned, that taxpayers may not be aware of these rules, I think that there's a general understanding that there are circumstances when the IRS, when Treasury, when law enforcement can seize property, right? So there are legal levies under the IRS system. I think it's going to be really hard for folks to understand the difference between when the government can legally seize your money or your assets and when they cannot. Can you give taxpayers maybe a few tips for clearly, for example, on the IRS side, notice is key, right? So IRS can't just show up at your house one day and take your truck. Like they have to give you notice. They have to have an, there has to be an assessment. What can people generally look for if something like this happens to them to understand when it's legal and when it's not, or when it's appropriate and when it's not? We think it's only appropriate when someone has been convicted of a crime. That doesn't mean that the property can't be seized. Obviously, 
you are not convicted at the moment you are arrested. And there's a criminal justice system that deals with resolving whether you're found guilty. We think that civil forfeiture is uh, inherently unjust because it involves the seizure of property from people who have not been convicted of a crime, not been necessarily even charged with a crime, and that it is only legitimate after someone has been convicted of a crime as part of the criminal forfeiture case, which is part of the um, penalty proceedings in a criminal case. At the same time you get your sentence or the fine that you're supposed to pay, that is when the criminal forfeiture proceedings take place. Anything beyond that we think is, is illegitimate. Now, Of course, you're raising a a separate issue about the IRS being able to seize when you have taxes that are uh, overdue, unpaid tax debt, that sort of thing. And of course, taxpayers have a right to contest the tax bill. They have a right to dispute and internally adjudicate with uh, the IRS over what their actual tax liability is. But once that is determined, and if it's determined against them, they then have an obligation to pay. And they can, of course, enter into some sort of payment plan to make it so that realistically they can pay off the, the debt over time. But if they refuse to do that and, and fail to, to pay off the tax debt, then yes, the, the IRS can, can make a seizure because it's been adjudicated through the IRS and possibly through the courts. The difference with civil forfeiture is your money could be seized at any point while you're going through an airport, while you're driving down the highway, it could just be seized out of your bank account and you wake up the next morning and suddenly there's no money there. And you don't necessarily get any notice at all of this happening until after the fact. And then you have to do a variety of things, file claims and file answers and do a variety of things in order to defend your property from civil forfeiture. And so the the burden falls pretty heavily on the property owner there. And Of course, this is a situation where the government, all it has to show, at the federal level at least, is by a preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not, that your money is connected to illegal activity. And it doesn't matter if you're the person who committed the crime or not. If someone borrowed your car and used it to commit a crime, it is still forfeitable under those circumstances. There is an innocent owner statute now under federal law that um, actually allows someone who, in that circumstance, if someone borrowed their car and used it to commit a crime, you can assert an innocent owner defense. But in the topsy-turvy world of civil forfeiture, of course, the burden is on you to prove your own innocence, completely unlike just about anything else in the criminal justice system. And so that's why we find it so objectionable. It, It doesn't follow the normal burdens of proof of criminal cases, but it imposes the same burden and penalty that you would get if you were actually convicted of a crime. When that moment that you said, like you wake up and you find out that your money's gone again, kind of, kind of comparing it to IRS, because that's a lot of what my listeners know about when your money is seized in a levy from the IRS, you have notice and you know that it's from IRS. Mm -hmm. When you get up in the morning and you find out that your money has been seized by the government, do you know why? I mean, you mentioned that you had, you could, there was obviously an appeal process that you can follow, but do they say it was CBP or do you know? It sort of depends on the circumstances of the seizure. Uh, I know of many people who had no idea what happened or what was going on. And the only way they were able to find out is somebody at the bank who was sympathetic said, well, the FBI or the IRS or somebody contacted us about it and you'll have to talk to them. Okay, And, you know, eventually you you should get a notice saying 
what the seizing agency is, and it will usually list the various offenses that they claim the money is connected to, but they don't provide any other information. So you don't know why they think your money is connected to money laundering or structuring or whatever it is. You just know that's the statute they are saying your money or your property was involved in a, a violation of. And of course, that makes it very difficult to prove that it wasn't because you're not even sure what the, the theory of the government's case is at that point. And you have to wait many, many months under the federal civil forfeiture system before the government even has to file a complaint. That typically happens more than six months or more after the seizure. Of course, if you have your life savings seized, getting by for those six months and probably much longer than that can be very difficult. Obviously, if, if this were to happen to you, you know, you, the number one piece of advice would be to get a good lawyer. <laughs> uh, folks who, if this did happen to someone, what are kind of the steps that you take then? You, you mentioned it would be, it could be a while before you get noticed. So if you do wake up and find out that, you know, your, your bank account's been cleared out by the government, do you suggest going down to the bank and trying to find a sympathetic teller? Or what should you do beyond, again, seeking out a good legal representative? Hiring a good attorney is probably the best first step. You can obviously call your bank and ask what's going on, and they may or may not tell you which agency is involved or you know something about that. Typically, if your cash is seized while you're traveling or in some circumstances where you're present, you'll be given a property receipt, although sometimes agencies fail to do that and people have cash seized that hasn't been counted and they don't know exactly how much it is and the, they never get a receipt for it. And so there's a whole lot of question marks about what just happened and whether all of the money will be accounted for, et cetera. But the basic process is you should, around the time of the seizure, receive that property receipt. And then the government, uh, the federal government, I'll just talk about how things work under federal law because uh, state forfeiture laws vary quite widely. The federal government has 60 days to send you a notice under CAFRA, the Civil Asset Forfeiture Reform Act, the federal law that governs civil forfeiture. Once you get that notice, you have 35 days to either file a claim, which is asking the government to take your case to court and file a, a civil forfeiture complaint in federal court, or you usually have 30 days to file an administrative petition to ask the agency to reconsider, show mercy on you. You can sort of make your case to the agency and ask them to return the money. You can, of course, quit, or you can try to negotiate some sort of settlement with the agency. If you go the administrative petition route, it's usually not going to end in a, in a good result. These are being decided by people at the very agency that seized your property. They have every incentive not to give your property back. And typically, almost all of the decisions they make are unreviewable by courts. Oh, wow. It's a dead end. And you generally don't want to go down that dark alley toward that dead end. Instead, what you probably want to do is you want to file a claim. And you do that by sending the claim form which has to be signed under oath, sending that to the agency. Once the agency gets your claim form, they then have 90 days to file a civil forfeiture complaint in the district in which your property was seized. So if you add up those dates, it's 60 days for them to send you a notice, then you have 35 days to file a claim, and then the government has another 90 days to file a civil forfeiture complaint. You end up at about six months after the seizure that the government is filing the civil forfeiture complaint. And of course, during all of this process, you want to hire an attorney to help you, especially at the end point. There's actually filing the claim itself is pretty simple. It's a one-page form. 
you just have to be sure you sign under oath and include the information that you're requested to include. And so that, frankly, can be done by people without the assistance of an attorney. Although I recommend an attorney anyhow, because you don't want to fill out that form wrong. Since some of these are so closely connected, obviously, to criminal allegations, are there concerns when you're filling out these forms that you might also be self-incriminating? That is potentially a concern. The information that is required for a claim form is only that you are the owner of the property. You have to state your ownership interest, which could be a co-owner of the property. You might merely be the possessor of the property rather than the actual owner. And you have to include your basic contact information and then sign under oath. So that information is by itself I think it's pretty unlikely to be incriminating unless there's something about the property itself that is incriminating in some way. Of course, if we're talking about contraband, there is no civil forfeiture process for contraband because it's not legal to own it. So if the you know, government agents seize a kilo of cocaine from your luggage, there's no process for adjudicating that. It's just contraband and it's immediately forfeited and hopefully destroyed. Sure. But if you, I don't know, if you had a a murder weapon, I suppose, that was seized, right? Then theoretically, you could incriminate yourself, I suppose, by saying, I am the owner of that weapon. I worry about like some of my clients overshare with the IRS a lot. Like they'll get audited on a Schedule A and they'll try to explain why their Schedule A is right. And then they'll accidentally say something like, you know, oh, that I should have filed a Schedule C. I haven't done that for years, you know, because they get nervous and they overshare. So that's what I was thinking. Like, you know, no, this isn't cash that belonged to my brother, the person that accused of this crime. This was my dad's money. Like, I, you know, instead yeah. of just saying, yeah, that's what I was thinking about. Because sure. I think one of the key, I, I always say this to um, not only my clients, but my, my readers and my listeners. And one of the good things about hiring an attorney is that an attorney has no skin in the game and that they can often just answer the questions and they can often say things without passion or without saying too much because they know what to say. Like they mm-hmm. know how to answer the question. Like you just told us what's on the form. Yep. You don't, the person doesn't need to flip it over and write their narrative on the back. Like here's yeah. the form. That's, that's, that's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. No, people do that. You're not required to do that. On the old claim forms, there's not really a space for you to do that other than, you know, they ask you to describe your ownership interest in the property. And sometimes people take that as an opportunity to give a long narrative about how they came to acquire the car or whatever. One problem that has occurred in recent years, I think it was a few years ago, a number of the federal agencies revised their form and now they ask a bunch of other questions that are not actually required uh, under the statute. You're not required to answer those questions, but sometimes people do thinking it'll give them a better chance of getting their money back. Right. And those, yes, could be incriminating. They also could just hurt your civil forfeiture case because you're not presenting them in probably the best possible way with the assistance of an experienced attorney who knows kind of the basis on which the agency makes its decisions. Yeah, I think it's a very common mistake. I think people think immediately after the seizure, oh, I want to get my money back and hopefully I can get it back by like next week or something. And that's just (laughs) not happening. It's possible you could hire an attorney and negotiate a settlement relatively quickly but you're going to be losing at least 50% of your money probably and you know more because of the contingency fee. So that's the only that's the only way to really get money back quickly, but you're losing most of it when you do that. People think, "Oh, well I've just got to show them. I've just got to, you know, I've I've got all this proof. I I know that where the money's from. Um I'll show them." And 
they end up mistaking the administrative petition and the claim form and they send in a claim form with written up like it's an administrative petition or they think that the administrative petition is where they make their case to the judge. They write it all out, they send it in and then they find out, nope, this is being decided by somebody at DEA and they're going to rule against you and you can't appeal their decision. And so they're out of luck at that point. And that's really unfortunate. I think that's one of the most frustrating parts of civil forfeiture is this administrative forfeiture process that resolves 80 to 90% of cases because people aren't familiar with the system, get confused, don't get their paperwork in on time, forget that they have to sign it, forget that they have to do it under oath, et cetera, et cetera. And anytime you do it wrong, the government basically says, well, too bad, so sad, we're going to administratively forfeit your property and you lose it. And you do that without ever going to court. I think if you haven't committed a crime, you tend to think you're right. I run across this in taxpayers all the time. Like you feel like if you're right, if someone will just listen, you can explain it all away. And that I can see where in your zeal to get that done, you're like, if I just explain this, I'll get yep. my money back in two days. Right. So yeah. I, I can see that because again, these are situations where as you mentioned before, like m- most of the time, there's not an underlying criminal conviction. These are right. situations where your property has been seized. And especially if you know, if you're one of these folks, like the woman who was flying just to deliver money to her dad, when you know you haven't done anything wrong, you're sure like rationally that if someone would just listen, they can clear all this up. So I think it's surprising to folks to learn that this is something that could go on for months or in ca- some cases, even years. It is. And so I, every week, speak to people who have recently or sometime in the past few months had their property seized. You know, it was obviously a surprise to them. They didn't expect it to happen. They're still in shock. Sometimes they get a little bit paranoid about the world because they realize things aren't quite the way they thought they were. They trusted law enforcement previously. They thought law enforcement was out to do good, keep the bad guys from hurting people and that sort of thing. It's a very rude awakening when they realize that these folks who are seizing my cash, they're not interested in the truth or whether there was an actual crime. What they're interested in is, do they satisfy the bare minimum to seize the property? And if so, they're almost certainly going to seize it. And then they're going to try to forfeit the property based on that. And what that means mostly is, if a federal agent or a police officer thinks they have probable cause, even if they're wrong about it, that's enough to seize your property. And for 80 to 90% of cases, the ones that never make it to court, that's all that's ever satisfied. A law enforcement officer somewhere thought probable cause was satisfied, seized someone's property based on that, never seen by a judge, the person loses their property, and they haven't been charged with a crime, they haven't been convicted of a crime, they've lost their life savings or the proceeds from selling a car or from selling their house or the money they had for their business to go buy equipment. I mean, I've heard hundreds of stories. Yeah, uh, people are really shaken by it and really upset and frustrated. And they do want to fill out that form and tell their story. You know, they're very passionate about it. And I have to try to talk them down a little bit and say, look, I know you want to tell your story, but you've got to wait for the right time to do that. And if you just file this administrative petition, it's going to be decided by somebody at the agency. And the chances that they are going to side with you against their own agency are very low. So you should probably reconsider. I'll offer one caveat. Customs and Border Protection, 
I believe alone among federal agencies, actually lets claimants have two bites at the apple. Meaning, if you file your administrative petition and you don't like the results, they will give you 60 days after the decision on your administrative petition to then file a claim and go to court. So the calculus is quite a bit different for Customs and Border Protection because maybe it's worth seeing what the, what the agency says. Maybe they will show mercy on you and give some of the money back. For that agency, administrative petitions um, actually do make sense a lot of the time, depending on you know, what your timeline is and all that, because the administrative petition process is not fast. There is absolutely no timeline whatsoever. The agency can take a year or two years to decide. They usually don't take quite that long, but they can. And, you know, you're just sort of at the, the mercy and whims of somebody in the agency making a decision about your property, and you have no idea when they're going to do that or what they're going to say. So it sounds like you spend a lot of your time, you know, putting out individual fires. I know that when the law was changed for structuring, that was a major victory for taxpayers. Is it your goal to kind of see the legislation change for these other administrative agencies, or are you pretty much resigned that it's not going to change and you just hope to get victories through the courts, or kind of what's the, the end goal? Well, we have a multi-pronged strategy. Our, our end goal is, is ultimately to end civil forfeiture altogether. Okay. We think nobody should lose their property without being convicted of a crime, and that the forfeiture itself should be part of that criminal process. It should be something that happens after the conviction as part of the sentencing process and not a parallel proceeding. Because in some civil forfeiture cases, there are criminal charges filed. You don't know whether the person's going to be convicted or not. And there's this ongoing civil proceeding and ongoing criminal proceeding. And it's a big mess. We think it should all be unified in the criminal proceeding. And only if you are convicted of the crime should your property be forfeited. So we pursue a multi-pronged strategy to do that. First and foremost, IJ, the Institute for Justice, is a impact litigation firm. We follow a similar strategy to other impact litigation groups that you may be familiar with, like ACLU or the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. We're looking to bring cases that establish important precedent that has a broad effect. So while day-to-day I am helping individual people with uh, their individual cases, I'm looking for cases uh, we don't end up representing the vast majority of those people. We, we try to provide them with some assistance, point them in the right direction, give them a referral, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But we're looking for cases that can set, establish important precedent limiting civil forfeiture. And so we're looking for cases where there's particular due process violations, where there's particular excessive fines problems, that sort of thing. So we focus on and litigate those cases. And Right now, for example, we have a a case that's up before the South Carolina Supreme Court, as you mentioned in the intro, challenges civil forfeiture altogether in South Carolina because a circuit court judge there declined to enter a forfeiture in in a case uh, against Travis Lee Green and held that civil forfeiture in the state was unconstitutional, violated due process, violated uh, the excessive fines clause because of the profit incentive that's created when law enforcement agencies get to keep what they seize. Um, It's sort of an eat what you kill system in South Carolina. The court found that that violated due process. The lack of a prompt post-seizure hearing violates due process. And the the fact that a judge rarely, if ever, actually oversees your case violates due process, plus the excessive fines problem when often the value of the thing that's being forfeited is far greater than whatever criminal penalties you might face. And of course, if you're never convicted of a crime, 
you don't face any criminal penalties at all. So it's an excessive fine pretty much in every circumstance when someone faces no actual criminal penalties because they're, they're not convicted. That's an example where there's a chance to set statewide law that civil forfeiture can no longer be used in South Carolina. But we also do legislative work as well. We've been involved in the legislation in New Mexico and Nebraska that essentially eliminated civil forfeiture. Uh, and we've been active in several dozen states across the country passing forfeiture reforms. There's, I forget the exact total right now, but I think it's between 30 and 35 states have passed some form of civil forfeiture reform in the past five years. Oh, wow. Some of those are really good reforms. Some of those are pretty weak reforms, but they're at least making some reforms. And we're active at the, the federal level at uh, working on legislation, trying to reform federal civil forfeiture laws. The law that you were referencing, the, the statute that was the bill that was passed last year, is part of a, a broader piece of legislation, but it is called the Clyde Hirsch Sowers Respect Act. And two of those people, I mentioned them already, Randy Sowers and Jeff Hirsch, are IJ clients. And the bill is named after them because of what happened to them when the IRS seized their cash without any evidence that they were actually involved in any crimes. So um, I think there is a lot of uh, reason for optimism and hope for reform. It's just not the sort of thing that's going to happen overnight. You know, we've been at this for quite a while. I expect we're going to be at this for quite a while longer, but we're making progress. And just a few years ago, there was only one state in the country that didn't have civil forfeiture, and that was North Carolina. Now it's New Mexico, Nebraska, and North Carolina. And there are over a dozen states now that require a criminal conviction before civil forfeiture proceedings can be initiated. So that's um, a positive step forward. And we're hopeful that you know, people will continue to take it seriously and continue to realize how bad of a, a rights violation uh, civil forfeiture is. Sure. Well, and I appreciate your coming on today to talk about this, because, again, I think that it's something that most people have heard maybe whispers about or they've seen a case on TV for 30 seconds, but they really didn't understand what the underlying issues were. So I appreciate your taking time to explain not only what it means, but what the process is, because I think that's really helpful to folks. If they need to get in touch with you, you mentioned there was a forum on the website. I'll be sure to put that in the show notes. If someone's listening to this and thinking, this is terrible, I didn't know what was going on, what can I do? What would you tell them? Well, there's a number of things you can do. Depending on what state you live in, there is likely a forfeiture reform bill that is, that is pending. Some of these are good bills and some of these are not so good bills. You know, you can find that out pretty easily. We've got a website that tracks uh, all of the legislation. If you go to endforfeiture.com, there's lots and lots of information about both um, reform legislation, but also what civil forfeiture is. If you want a reminder or a refresher on that topic, the latest news and updates uh, on civil forfeiture. And so that, that would be the, the place that I would start. There's also, you can uh, call your federal congressman and um, ask for them to support the Due Process Act, which is an important piece of federal reform legislation. I hesitate to, to do this, but I'll, I'll make the plug for the Institute for Justice. You can support us. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We um, operate uh, solely based on donations from donors. We have over 8,000 individual donors that give us 80% of our budget every year. The remainder is uh, from charitable foundations. We don't accept corporate money. If you wanted to help us litigate these cases, you can, of course, make a donation that is directed toward uh, civil forfeiture litigation, if you would like, or uh, civil forfeiture 
forfeiture legislative work, if you would like. And, you know, that will enable us to continue representing these property owners pro bono so that they don't uh, have to pay a dime for their representation and will also help us uh, continue to try to push for legislative change, meaningful legislative change, and not sort of some of the fake legislative change that uh, (laughs) prosecutors and police are sometimes trying to push through to um, get people to turn their attention to something else and think that civil forfeiture is already fixed. So I think those are some of the places you would start, but go to endforfeiture.com. And we'll be sure to put all these links in the show notes so that listeners can just click on them. Thank you again, Dan, for stopping by again. I think this is really valuable information. I think it doesn't get enough emphasis. I know I learned a lot today and I actually read about these cases all the time. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Happy to do it. And that will do it for this episode. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Tax Girl. And you can sign up for my free newsletter at taxgirl.com. Thanks for listening. Because paying taxes is painful but hearing about them doesn't have to be.